Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 150 (laughs) of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Dean Cardinal about business lessons learned in the dead zone of Mount Everest. I know that sounds pretty badass, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah, it is pretty badass. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio, legal practice management software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free today at Clio.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So way back in episode 18, we had an interview with our friend Shannon Hoagland where you and she talked about kind of creative networking tips. And during that episode, part of the conversation was about one of your techniques, which is that you often, when meeting a new person and doing networking, highlight the fact that one of your passions and hobbies is winter camping. I don't know if it's a technique. Technique? Tip? A thing you do. Thing I love to talk about yeah. if given any excuse. Yeah. Well, and, and part of the hook in episode 18 was about how it makes networking really easy when you have something interesting that you're passionate about that you can fall back on when you're making cold introductions to people you don't know and doing kind of networking chit chat. And just to be clear, it's not golf. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> And so in episode 18, we're talking about your passion slash hobby of winter camping. And so I happened to randomly sit next to Dean at a conference a couple of months ago and heard about some of his exploits of polar expeditions and climbing Kilimanjaro dozens and dozens of times. And he had just the day before gotten back from the Everest base camp. I was like, shit. This is a guy who both needs to be on our podcast and who Sam needs to meet. And so that was kind of the impetus for bringing Dean on. He's not a lawyer. You two aren't going to talk about law. He's going to talk about going to the North Pole and (laughs) Everest and climbing to the tops of dangerous mountains and things like that. But with the hook of how that can relate to both how you think about the work you do in the world and about kind of using extreme sports as an example of achieving big goals in your life and how that can help you as an entrepreneur. Yeah, overcoming challenges is overcoming challenges. It kind of doesn't matter. I mean, physical challenges are hard in a different way than business challenges, but the concepts stretch. So in this episode of our Law Practice Podcast, we will be talking about climbing Mount Everest. We Literally. Are, yeah. Actually, we're going to talk about that and other badassery that Dean has engaged in. And if anything, you'll see that I'm a little bit shy talking to him because I think he's cool. He's <laughs> super cool. <laughs> so that said, here's my conversation with Dean. Quick warning, my audio during this interview is pretty terrible. I decided to work from home during some bad weather and use an old mic, and that was a bad decision. Paul, our audio editor, has done his best with it, but it is still pretty bad on my end. I really enjoyed the interview, so I hope that comes across despite the bad quality on my end. Okay, my name is Dean Cardinal. I am an adventurer from Salt Lake City, Utah. I've worked the last 25 years as an avalanche forecaster at Snowbird Ski Resort here in Utah. 
along with Mountain Rescue in the Wasatch Mountains here in Utah. I also am an international mountaineer and guide and have guided expeditions and trips all over the world. I operate and own a company called Worldwide Trekking, where we take people on adventures in Nepal and Tanzania, Africa, South America, pretty much worldwide, as well as a nonprofit where we give back to the local areas as we travel. Uh, I'm so glad you're here with us. And uh, adventure is the coolest sounding job title I can think of. <laughs> when you <laughs> post you. a job description, do you do you post uh, do you seeking adventures? You know, it's funny. I do a lot of talks for uh, different organizations and groups, and and uh, I'm always uh, I was doing one a few years ago for the Wilderness Medical Society, and I looked at the program that all these speakers, and I was the only one that didn't say MD. They all <laughs> in my name said Dean Cardinal Adventure, That's and I awesome. thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. So, you, I mean, you've written about your adventures in, in a book called Inspired. Yes. You know, I know you wrote it with the idea that um, risk-taking and, and being careful about it can inform business and risk-taking in business. And I thought that was really accurate because I think most people who've gone on adventures kind of feel the same way. But, um, but maybe, maybe we should start by talking about sort of the nature of risk and the difference between how um, adventures are perceived as risk takers and what it actually means in the day to day. I think one of the things that's important in an adventure, some lifestyle and even a career or job that is risky um, to, in a physical sense, meaning if uh, there's an accident, I could be harmed, killed by partners, my team, whoever I'm working with. So the consequences are, are really large. And that's what we try to do is we do the research, you know, get properly educated on being able to make good decisions uh, in a natural environment most of the time, and then um, deciding what is the acceptable amount of risk that you're willing to take, and if there is an accident, what are the consequences of your action? Am it, is it just a setback, or am I going to have a, a catastrophe here and, and, and have a really bad accident? You know, so trying to identify what the consequences are, you can make a lot of mistakes. You just can't make the big one. You're a skier and a mountaineer and a general general adventurer. I like to go winter camping, and I think about winter camping as a little bit more like a chess match with the environment in contrast to um, flying down a mountain, which is much more like blood rushing in your head, um, thrill. Um, there, there's a planning and risk-taking and assessment that goes into it beforehand, but it, everything happens very quickly. Whereas, well, I imagine when you're climbing Mount Everest, the thing that kills you is a decision you made hours or days ago, not not necessarily the thing that you just decided right then and there. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think you know when when you're uh, you focus on your bigger objective and you are climbing Mount Everest. For me. I summited Mount Everest on the 67th day after I set out from Utah. So, you know, you have to stay focused for a really long period of time. And during the more hazardous parts of the climb, the Kumbu Icefall, the Lhotse Faith, the upper elevations, you know, we're talking about month, a month and a half or so of climbing on the mountain itself. And, you know, I like to look at it in two ways. Number one, uh, I set out an objective for the day. I'm trying to get from camp one to camp two, say, and then I think about all the obstacles that are in my way, uh, all the hazards that could come up. And then I 
focus on the moment in front of me. So I'm totally focused on what I'm doing now. So I don't have distractions that uh, make it so I don't recognize a hazard that comes up. And in the mountains, I think, and it can be applied a lot of places, a plan can be your worst enemy because having too much set into a plan means that my focus is just to get to the next camp. It's not to recognize the crevasses that are around me and the obstacles that I have to avoid. So we have to deviate from our plan in the mountains a lot because like winter camping for you, you know, because the weather forecast says one thing uh, and now it's blowing 40 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour. I'm going to adjust to the environment around me constantly. You know, we I got a chance to listen to Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, recently talk about how they plan missions. And he said basically all they talk about is failure. Yep. Um, you know, and then and then for each failure that they anticipate, for each thing that could go wrong, they come up with a contingency plan. And it's that sounded to me a lot like what uh, what you described doing uh, on Everest and, and part of it or, or on any mountain. Um, but especially on Everest, it really uh, came home to me because I didn't realize this before. But, you know, you spend what, like 24, uh, 48 hours in the death zone, meaning like the oxygen is yeah. so thin that your brain can't function properly. And so you're you're trying to have this chess match with the mountain when you can't think properly. What's that like? Yeah. And that's, that's based, <laughs> I mean, you basically uh, you chalk that up to years and years of experiences that you've gone through and all those failures, right? And then on the mountain, oftentimes the day before, constantly I'm in my life in, in general, but I'm, you're playing the what if game up there. Mm -hmm. So I go through this game, like if this happens, I'm going to do this. And if this happens, I'm going to do that while, while I'm in a clear state of mind. So when you get up into a hypoxic state, where you're not coming up, you're, for lack of a better word, you're you're not really coming up with any great ideas up there. <laughs> um, you better have pre-thought about them. You better have maybe had some experience on um, past climbs and other situations that you can apply to the situation you're in at the moment and make a good decision. You use a term that um, that I've used and that I've, I, I guess I've, I'm sure I've heard lots of uh, outdoor enthusiasts use, which is you have to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. Because there's nothing comfortable about being in a hypoxic state at the top of a mountain when everything around you is trying to kill you. Um, but you have to be able to just be cool and make level-headed decisions. Yeah, and I think that, that that's really important. Up there, you know, it comes into play so much. I say it to so many people that I guide. You know, mountaineering is the art of being uncomfortable or being comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's really about a patience game. Um, it's really about knowing, say, if I have a headache at a high altitude uh, because of a lack of pressure in the air, that with time it's going to go away and I just can focus on my breathing and hydrating little inconveniences or being very cold or getting to the tent exhausted and having to set up your tent and make snow into water and, and then heat the water up to drink and then make some soup or something to eat and, and things like that. It's just this constant battle with uh, an uncomfortable surrounding. And um, I, th I think the more you do it, the more you can enjoy um, knowing the ultimate, you know, challenge comes with that. And that as you get through it, it's going to, it's going to be uh, a great, a great thing that you accomplish. It's kind of, uh, it's like training for resilience, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you, and you really have to be, I mean, 
I couldn't agree more about the, the failure uh, aspect of things. It's these minor setbacks, minor failures. And, you know, in your mind, I always think of failures as an opportunity to have learned something mm-hmm. and an opportunity to try again. Well, I was going to say, so you, so you started two businesses. And I'm, and I'm wondering if you see the parallels. I assume you see the parallels um, between uh, being comfortable, being uncomfortable due to the environment and being comfortable being uncomfortable because of the, the business risk you're taking or the, the money situation that you find yourself in or, or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I, I did start my business. Uh, you know, I've been a ski patrolman and avalanche forecaster for 15 years and uh, had been guiding for other agencies. Like a lot of businesses that start, they start from frustration of thinking you can do it a better way. Um, I started my business in my employee housing dorm room up at Snowbird, and it was it was uncomfortable at first. I, I was not a, a businessman, so to say, um, but I had guests that wanted to go on trips. I wanted to offer them something more. And in the beginning, um, I didn't have much, so I didn't have much to lose uh, with my business. But as I grew and then moved into a home office, And now, and I was still working all by myself. And now I have, you know, a team of about 10 people in a large office space um, with different jobs. Then that was when it really got more uncomfortable for me because I wasn't as used to running a business and a business team. But I thought of them more as one of my uh, groups, expedition groups, guided groups that need information, direction, encouragement you know, and an idea of what we're all trying to accomplish together. And uh, it's kind of come around. I suppose you all, that's sort of how we all start, right? We have an idea, but it turns out that running a business is not the same thing as what we developed our expertise in. And and that transition is uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, it was very uncomfortable. It was definitely, uh, you know, met with setbacks and uh, some frustrations and uh, a lot of uncertainty and um, after, I'd say the, the time when it, it started to um, get the most uncomfortable for me was about two years ago, where I started to take a more advisory consulting job at the ski resort that was kind of my day job, and, and then left that, and now I consult there, and I took on my, my business as my full-time career, I had had people working for me, but I was still kind of double dipping. I was still doing both. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was uncomfortable because then all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is, this is my total focus now is my biz, two businesses. And uh, it, it's been fun. I, I guess in, in the one thing for me is I enjoy the uh, excitement of uncertainty and uh, trying to, you know, figure it out. And we didn't dive into this at the beginning, but um, the two businesses are Worldwide Trekking and the Human Outreach Project, and they kind of weave together, uh, it sounds like. So maybe you could yeah. talk just a little bit about both of those and especially how the Human Outreach Project um, comes out of the trekking company. So Worldwide Trekking is an adventure travel company, and when I started it after a long mountaineering career, I wanted to make it uh, an opportunity-based company for people to come on trips from you know California to Connecticut and everywhere in between, all over the world, you know, sign up for one of our trips and go climb Kilimanjaro or trek to Mount Everest Base Camp. You know, do an adventure challenge for them that would be guided, and uh, they could go on these amazing trips and accomplish great goals. 
um, because of my experience traveling overseas, you know, I had seen all too often the uh, the places where people struggle with everyday life in Nepal and Africa and areas of South America. And I thought that if I was going to be bringing over, you know, uh, these groups of, of adventure travelers, that we should do something as a business to give back to those local communities. So, you know, now that now we run a lot of trips on Kilimanjaro and Tanzania, Africa and safaris. And we have an orphanage there on four acres of land. And we have a school lunch program where we feed 850 kids lunch every single day. And in Nepal, we just cut the ribbon on a new medical clinic in a area that treks through to the Annapurna region. And um, down in South America, where we trek uh, in the Andes, we opened two computer centers at schools uh, this last year. So, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. I really think that we should... Uh, you know, give back to the areas that we're doing our business in. Yeah. You, I mean, I assume you sleep quite well knowing what you've accomplished. That sounds really awesome. It's been really cool. I mean, it's been a such a, a blessing in, in disguise. I mean, in the beginning, I, I found myself, you know, formulating these relationships with uh, my overseas uh, contacts and communities. And you want to do something for them and knowing in the beginning I could bring I started out by bringing two duffel bags full of supplies for every group I would take. And then uh, because of certain areas I found to maybe not distribute the supplies as they should or take advantage of it, that's when I started to look to buy land to build the orphanage in Tanzania or take more solid programs on. Um, right now, over the holidays, we're a Utah-based uh, company and we we delivered holiday um, Thanksgiving uh, food supplies to veterans in the area, as well as gift cards to Walmart, and they'll get another uh, supply of food uh, during the week before Christmas holiday. And um, as well, we're we're doing um, twelve sponsored families for kids that would not celebrate the holiday over uh, Christmas time if they did not have some outside support. So we also have programs in the U.S. So um, I'm curious because, of course, I, I, I read the book. I, um, I learned a little bit about you, and I'm like, geez, I, like, what if I, I want to go to Kilimanjaro or I want to go to Everest Base Camp? Like, what does a trip to Kilimanjaro typically run price-wise? Uh, run for Kilimanjaro about $4,900. That includes everything from the time you show up in Tanzania until the time it we drop you back off. So it's lodging before for a couple nights with all your meals, permits, guide team, uh, all of the mountain facilities, the climb on Kilimanjaro. Afterwards, we, we spend another night and have uh, um, celebration dinner. And then oftentimes people go on a safari after that. Wait, does that include airfare do I, or do I have to get myself there? No, it includes. It doesn't include uh, uh, international airfare. Whenever we have a trip where you have domestic flights like helicopter rides or uh, charters to get into a you know landing strip to start a trek like in Nepal, then that would be all included. So basically I tried to make it so everything, you know, usually uh, a professional or somebody who signs up for one of our trips can – you know, get the gear list, get our training plan and consult back and forth with them as they prepare over months before the trip. And then when they show up on the trip, they are properly geared up. 
We've given them the direction on training and consulting. And then when they show up, they simply meet the other 12 or you know 14 people that are on the adventure. And everything is transportation, lodging, all their meals, permits, everything is covered. And they can just enjoy the adventure and focus on you know, the, the elements that they're going to be dealing with along the way. Well, I know what I'm asking for for Christmas. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not as they much as great. I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I got to say that uh, I am so lucky to, to see, first, I see so many groups of strangers become great friends. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine when you go on a trip, say you and a spouse or a buddy or somebody come on a trip, and you don't know the other 10 people on the trip. By the time you're halfway or, or through that trip or experience, you've you've made new lifelong friendships there. And I see it again and again. And also have the uh, opportunity to help people challenge themselves. You know, the art of guiding is pushing someone beyond what they think they can do, but not beyond what they're capable of doing. So it's that balance right there that helps them determine uh, who they really are themselves. And uh, you have to kind of read them and see what kind of uh, output they're going to give you and, you know, push them right to their limits, but also make sure you're not pushing them, uh, I guess, over the edge. Uh, I've I've been on a couple of outward bound trips. And on the first one that I went on, my instructor talked about it like the rings on on the stump tree. And um, every time you try something new and push yourself to have a new experience, it's like you're the tree growing a little bit and you're adding a ring Mm -hmm. to the tree and and that's your comfort zone and the bigger your comfort zone gets the more comfortable you'll be doing anything else in your life um but you're right like the people that you expand your comfort zone with that that's a bonding thing that you just take with or take with you yeah and that goes back to that being comfortable being uncomfortable and uh the more experiences that you have the more times i'm up in a tent um, making water out of snow and, and in my bag, trying to stay warm and doing all that stuff. The more it just seems like adventure to me. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you get comfortable with that element that you're in. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, Dean, I'm going to ask you whether or not it's possible to burn snow. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm, you could spend more time helping clients in need, or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. 
If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. So we're back, and Dean, uh, like I mentioned, I love to go winter camping. I've been going for years, and um, somewhere along the way, somebody decided that you had to be careful when you melt snow because you might burn it, which I maintain is completely ludicrous. But I think you've probably melted a lot more snow than me, so I'm curious. Can you burn snow? You know, I, I, I think no matter how bad a cook you are, I would have a hard time burning snow. <laughs> um, I can say that there is a, somewhat an art a form of making snow into water, you know, picking the dense snow pieces and not making your water pot too cold, else you just wait a lot longer. But um, I, don't think, uh, I don't think we'd burn it. So. <laughs> And if we did in those environments, you'd probably still drink it. Probably wouldn't mind. <laughs> you wouldn't mind so much. <laughs> you were telling a story about um, about yourself, which resonated with me uh, on a number of levels. But um, am I pronouncing Cho'oyu right? Cho'oyu, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe you could just talk about um, – uh, maybe you could just tell a little bit about the story of what happened and, and how you found yourself um, in a weird position. And, and it led to – you mentioning in the book, hazardous attitudes. Okay. Well, I'd say one of the things that's interesting about the mountains is like, we all know of Mount Everest and Kilimanjaro, but there's so many other mountains out there like Cho'oyu, the sixth highest mountain in the world, 27,000 feet. And um, I was privately guiding uh, that mountain. And after about five weeks, a month or so on the, on the climb, my, my client had fallen sick and he was going to need to go down and and go home and as we were packing up around camp it wasn't a life-threatening illness but he couldn't go on to uh, continue the climb and uh, we were packing up around camp and I said you know he had been with me a number of times before I said hey you know I, I could walk you back out to the uh, the pickup point for the vehicle what do you think if I stay here and and finish this climb off. And, and, you know, at that point he, he had been a client that had become a good friend as well. And he was like, no, you should do it. You know, we're here. We put the time in, um, we we're acclimatized. I was ready. The, um, we had all of our facilities ready. So I went back up and I, and I was going to just solo the rest of the climb. Got back to base camp. Well, that year it had been a really, high avalanche uh, danger on the mountain. They had a weak layer and it kept snowing and there, we kept having numerous avalanches that were occurring on the mountain. And, um, you know, I've worked with the avalanches a long time. And I think nonetheless, you kind of get that tunnel vision. Like, you know, I'm, I, I'm here. I, you know, I spent the time, put, put the effort in. And I started to work my way from base camp up to camp one, work my way up to camp two and as I got up to camp two, you know, it, it was it was still quite unstable out and there was a lot going on. There's another huge avalanche came down, took out a team. And it's when I really had that realization. And it's funny because I teach this to so many people during avalanche courses and, mm -hmm. and different mountain courses, you know, the hazardous attitudes. And it goes back to the fact that the mountain, just like life or business or so many things, the mountain doesn't care that uh, I'm a guide or 
seasoned professional. The mountain doesn't care that I have a family at home that would miss me if I was killed. There's no feeling there from the mountain. And um, you just have to re- react with it. So the hazardous attitudes, I think, in any mistake that's ever, you know, m- been made uh, in my in my natural environment, you know, settings, I would say that those attitudes uh, fall into having made at least one or maybe more of these uh, attitudes. Do you want me to go down the list of hazardous attitudes? Uh, yeah, actually, I think it's useful because I, I, you know, I when when I'm reading that story, I. I am not a mountain climber. I have not had the level of adventures you have, but um, but I had uh, a, a time when I was I tend to be the leader of the group in the Boundary Waters, and it was negative thirty degrees out, and I was really committed to it. And I started recognizing some of them in myself. I started um, I was getting cold to the point where I was making bad decisions, and I thought I was making good decisions. I wanted to go, I, and I felt like we had to just stop and build a fire to get warm. Right. And I mean, you know, like fire does not warm you up at negative thirty. Um, but fortunately, while we were stomping around, I warmed up, came to my senses and realized what, what a dangerous set of decisions I was making. And, and I, as you were going through the, the list of five, that, that's the event that I, that I often think of where I'm like, yeah, no, I, I totally defeated myself with those attitudes. So I think it'd be useful to kind of run through them. Yeah. So that, that's a good example of, um, and there are no particular order, uh, as, as far as they go, but I'd say that would be more of like a overconfidence or macho attitude that can get Mm -hmm. in the way of people when you're guiding um, or when you're in charge of other people, like you're, they're expecting you to give them the result. You know, if I'm guiding people in powder snow situation and there's an avalanche hazard, it's up to me to recognize that maybe I'm not going to give them the best ski day because of the hazard that's out there. So being, you know, overconfident or a macho attitude, uh, we, we could call that number one that could get you in trouble. Um, Real easily. Another one would be uh, invulnerability. So thinking that, you know, it can't happen to you. What You know, bad things happen to other people. Oh, I'll be fine. Can't happen to me. So feeling invulnerable to the situation. Uh, the next one, uh, impulsivity or being impulsive. So, you know, going quicker doesn't generally make it safer for us. Sometimes there's times to move fast and sometimes there's time to take pause. But um, being too impulsive doesn't make it any more safe. Uh, anti-authority, I think, you know, these are, you know, the, the preset guidelines that we all live our life by or maybe uh, different businesses run by. You know, rules are generally and protocols are generally put in place to give good guidance. So, you know, recognizing your authority, recognizing uh, the protocols and abiding by them um, is really important. And then lastly, resignation. And uh, this does happen in the mountains where people get up in a bad storm, in a bad situation. Uh, when we were talking before, you mentioned my my uh, time on uh, Denali in Alaska, where I was crawling around on my hands and knees trying to find my way off the mountain. Could have easily, you know, gave up to resignation and said, like, this is it. I'm I can't find my way. I give up. Um, so, so not giving up. But you said in the book, it, you don't get to give up. You die. That's it. That, that's <laughs> you pay the ultimate going back to consequences. Yeah. That's the ultimate consequence. You're not going to lose a bunch of money. You're not going to, um, you know, have some people get upset with you because it didn't work out. You're going to die. So you, you, you pay the ultimate consequence for your action. I think the hazardous attitudes, um, you know, as we go down the resignation, anti-authority, impulsive, and vulnerability, 
or overconfidence, all of those, first of all, have to be challenged. Like every time that you want to keep moving and move quickly, you can't say, oh, I should slow down. You, you, have to, you have to challenge authority, right? You have to ask questions and you have to ask why, but, but you can't just, um, uh, you have to push every bit of these to their limit. But then I think you need to recognize when it's going too far, any single one of these hazardous attitudes when you're pushing it too far. And then it's really important to, as I did on show OU, break the chain. Yeah. You know, you, you say, I recognize that, you know, I need to go down. I'm going to pay the ultimate consequence for my actions here. So recognizing it is really important. And I think it goes back to, like I was saying about having a plan. If you have a plan and you follow your plan too precisely and and you're not willing to be flexible and make small changes and, and kind of dance with the plan, then there's a good chance that you're not going to get to the end of that idea or carry out that whole plan. It's almost like as one of the things I kept thinking about as I'm, as I'm reading about you deciding to, you know, abandon the trip is, is the sunk cost fallacy, right? The idea that you've come this far, so you might as well finish it out Um, or that you're so invested, you might as well go the rest of the way. And, you know, I could feel you making that decision when you were with your your wife actually on your honeymoon and you're you're close to the summit and you're just like, you know, maybe maybe I've lost sight of the whole point here. Yeah, and I think yeah, that brings up that brings up a great point. I mean, we call it summit fever. Um, you know, you're five hundred feet for the summit, but if I if mm-hmm. I'm I'm behind my turnaround time, uh there's a bunch of things that you know, maybe the weather's changing and when we get to the summit on a mountain climb, you're only halfway there. The goal is to get down. With my wife on my honeymoon, the whole thing was the realization was enjoy the journey. If, you know, and I tell every person that comes on one of our trips, like, you know, you're going to stand on the top of Kilimanjaro and take your, you know, your your new uh, Facebook photo for, you know, uh, <laughs> 15, 20 minutes or so. We're going to be at this for seven days. If you want to enjoy all the moments each day and, and you know, stop and take photographs and, and, and talk with your friend on the trail and walk and, you know, just take it all in, enjoy the journey. And I think that that's so, so important. And, uh, you know, it goes back again to being comfortable, being uncomfortable and uh, knowing that uh, if you can enjoy the journey, all that stuff's not going to feel so 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 bad. Dean, thanks so much for your your stories and your insights. My pleasure. Um, if people want to learn more about worldwide trekking and and maybe find the summit of Kilimanjaro with you, where do they go? Yeah, visit our website at www.wwtrek.com. So that's worldwide trekking. And um, you can always give us a phone call here in the office 801-943-0264. Awesome. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dean. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.